I'm Chuck Norris, and I approve this game. Between the time when gamers played with miniatures and chainmail, and the rise of the Wizards of the Coast, there was an age of advanced role-playing undreamed of. And onto the Skygats, destined to bear the jeweled crown of TSR upon a troubled brow. It was given to teach us all how to roll for initiative. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble! The Roll for Initiative podcast, volume number three, issue 130. DM Vince sitting with DM Matt. Hello, everyone. DM Nick. Hi, folks. And DM Chad. Yo. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, good. Take two has no sirens in the background, folks, because the first take I was running away from the police, apparently. It was so. Oh, no, no, don't talk about it. Oh, he's got that. that going for him. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, we're going to be doing a new show this week, obviously, and uh, I think we're going to look back at a couple things for Oriental Adventures this week. But first, let's uh, go to see what's been going on. Uh, Nick, what's been going on in your life recently? Uh, as far as gaming is concerned? Uh, yeah. Not like, you know, your hobbies or anything like that, you know. Well, gaming is my hobby. But oh. <laughs> other than that, um, I did talk about last time we did the Call of Cthulhu game, which was really fun. But yeah. we, I also meant to uh, mention that we uh, did my other, my friend Jeff, his campaign, kind of like the whole game. Of, it's like a Game of Thrones kind of campaign going on. Yeah. So we did that. And uh, that was really fun. It's it's getting gaining a lot more traction. I think more we're going to try to play that one a little more often. It's now I'm playing a I'm playing a knight. We have one more guy who's playing a cavalier, and um, things have gotten really interesting in the game now. Just some uh, some plots are starting to uh, deepen, if you will. So yeah, really enjoying that. Other than that, not a whole lot. Just reading a lot of whole. This time of year, I'm always like delving into my Call of Cthulhu stuff. That's all. <laughs> I understand, I understand. You know, hoping. <laughs> yeah. For the old ones to come back when Cthulhu will rise from Relech and... Um, sorry. Nick, Nick, relax. Sorry, sorry, sorry! <laughs> Put down the Serpentine Dagger and the Sacrificial Lamp. No, everything's fine. We're all fine here. The stars are not right. Yeah. Hey, not... you beat me to it. <laughs> oh, damn. Kalima, oh, sorry. Kalima. <laughs> <laughs> the horror... So, uh, Chad, you weren't here last week. What, what, what have you been doing? Well, uh, last week, yeah, I was actually participating in a uh, what they call disaster recovery exercise for my company where they we have to uh, uh, do a whole scenario of what would happen if the network went down. Aww. And uh, we proved that we could restore the network. So <laughs> I was actually pulling, like, I think I did 40 hours in three days. Uh, very busy. That <laughs> but, sucks. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Outside of and that, let me guess mm -hmm. your salary. Uh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> eh, what are you gonna do? The I can't bring down the network. I know they can bring it up. <laughs> yeah. It's just the IT life. 
Yeah. Outside of that, uh, I was uh, pretty much, I've been spending a lot of my time working on some adventures uh, for some various games that I'm going to be running at the uh, conventions coming up. Uh, There's Game Hole, uh, which is coming up this weekend in Madison. And yes, we all, in the name, uh, it's going to be a good convention. Now, that said, uh, I'm also working on uh, some adventures for GaryCon in March. And I think that'll be fun. And that'll uh, be GaryCon 5? That'll be GaryCon 6. Already? Yeah. I got to go to one. Oh, you really should. It's it's a great oh. time. I mean, it really is the closest thing to the early Gen Cons, I think, you can just about find. It's got all the uh, the old guard is there. Uh, and it's and not only that, but, you know, you go to Gen Con, you can meet some most of the same people. But... You're probably not you're going to either be in a line waiting for them to sign something or you might pass them on the street and say hi. But at Gary Con, you're going to be trapped in a hotel with them for three days. Uh, and, you know, it's a, by the end of it, they're going to know your name. I think North Texas RPG Con comes pretty close to Gary Con. And that's I haven't been to that one. Yeah, it's as far as old school is concerned, I think it comes very close to it. Mm hmm. Then it must be a pretty good one. Yeah, and they have a good amount of old TSR folk there, you know, roaming around, running games, signing things. A lot of the artists are there, too. I mean, Frank Mm -hmm. makes it every year. Uh, Tim makes it every year. Uh, I think Jim came a couple times. A bunch of the people from the uh, second edition era are there. Uh, Janelle Jacques is there. Uh, Jeff D is there. So quite a few people are there. Hmm. Yeah, actually, uh, GaryCon is uh, this year, I believe they have, uh, and why is my mind blanking right now? Uh, uh, RFI did an interview with him, uh, the artist, uh, uh, Easley, Jeff Easley. Jeff Easley. Yeah, and I, I, I want to say it's Jeff Easley. I'm checking their Elmore. Oh, Elmore. I'm sorry. Larry, Larry Elmore. Elmore. My was, apologies. I remember us doing an interview sorry, Larry. with Larry. Yeah, I'm like, when did we interview Jeff Easley? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, uh, when did that happen? And, but my, you know what? That's my... another good one. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah. 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 No, my mind is like a steel trap that's rusted shut. So. <laughs> <laughs> and no amount of master lock tool picks can pick it open. When you play mind games with me, buddy, you're walking on thin ice. <laughs> Obakabi. <laughs> Matt, you were disappearing last week and not showing up, so what happened with you? Oh, I had a some uh, car issues uh, the prior week. Um, transmission decided to go out of my car. Your car failed the Constitution check? Yes, it did. At uh, 250,000 miles, it decided to uh, fi- say enough is enough. Well... Mm-hmm. 250,000 miles, that's a good run, dude. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. It's just annoying when you're about uh, 40 minutes away from home and said no. car decides to do that. So no. I, so a large towing bill later, um, I got my car home and determined, you know, I'm better off just getting a new car. So I yeah. was car shopping, and I now have a new, at least new-to-me car, so all that's is cool. well. And yeah, large shot, a large bill later, and ramen noodles for the rest of the week. Matt is here. Yes, and and fortunately though, uh, I do have a little gaming getaway with my uh, home group uh, planned. Uh, 
We are renting a hotel suite and just board gaming all weekend. They're having our own little mini convention again, the fall edition. So yeah. oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. Actually, we do that. Uh, uh, Colin and and I and some of the other guys from the Dead Game Society, we, we just basically take our first name and then add the word con to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we dubbed it Cabin Con because we've done this is the third time we've done it. And the first time we did it we rented a cabin at a local park and then we decided to expand and rent an even larger cabin at a state park in kentucky uh, this past spring so this year we decided to do some for the fall version we decided something a little more low-key something i was able to act i was able to get the room for our entire stay for with my Hilton points, thanks to the uh, points I accrued when uh, Hilton decided to double charge me for my room at Gen Con. Yay! Yes, they let me keep the rewards points, so this one's on their screw-up. Ah, uh, 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 there you go. Yeah, so yeah, we're, we're doing, I'm prepping for that, mostly figuring out what board games to take, because we always uh, take a massive game library. <laughs> I was it, just thinking about, you know, a bunch of gamers in a Bunch of gamers in a cabin in the woods. What could possibly happen? Lots and lots of alcohol consumed. And a man yeah, comes exactly. out and rolls a critical hit on you. Yes. You run away screaming. Uh, I just think, you know, if there's a psychopath in the woods, the, I would fear for the psychopath. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> when we went, the last one we had, it was at General Butler State Park in uh, Carrollton, Kentucky. The cabin next to us was actually consisted of a bunch of women who were celebrating their someone's birthday. Uh-oh. Yeah. Mm. Yes. <laughs> we we did go over and visit at least some of the people did and uh some came back with some booze and some photos. So life was good. Oh, okay. Well, forward the photos and uh, yeah. okay. you don't want to see the photos. You really uh -oh. don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yep. And what about you, Vince? Um, I've been doing completely, utterly nothing. No, I have been uh, prepping the Dead Game Society Texas edition, or chapter, I should say. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Chad. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> is uh, I'm right now prepping for the uh, Marvel Superheroes game that I'll be running starting on November 9th locally. Cool. Oh, nice. And, uh, yeah, that's, I got about... Six of the people from the group are really interested in playing the game. We're going to be doing a mutant-based campaign, so. Very good. What kind of timeline are you doing it in? Like, are you doing it in, like, the 80s uh, era of comics or more the 90s of what's happening? Current times. Now. Okay. Nowadays. But with my own spin twist, I'm not following what's in the really comics. Just it's laid out in today's time. Oh, but cool. I'm not going to follow the whole, you know, Doctor Doom is inside Spider-Man's head or whatever the heck. You told us last time, Matt. Yeah, Doc Ock is now in Spider-Man's head, and Peter Parker is dead. So yeah, Spider-Man no. is Doc Ock, but in Peter Parker's body. Oh, wow. The Octa Spider. Yeah, and it, because they did a brain swap, and Peter Parker died of cancer because Doc Ock had cancer, and yeah. Hey, I know a better topic. Let's talk about Cyclops and the X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Cyclops. Oh, he, that. Uh, 
Uh, anything I would say would just involve more work on my end, post-production, censoring <laughs> myself. Anywho, moving right along. Oh, and I'm also <laughs> going to be, like I was talking to you guys before the podcast, but I'll say it on the podcast, prepping for a top-secret SI 24-style game, so... Very nice. Well, you know me. I love that whole. I love top secret. I love the whole genre. Yeah, and then since I, you know, twenty four will be coming back next year. I've been in the mood to run a twenty four style CTU type game. So, and what's per- more perfect than top secret SI? Not much. No. Mm. And you know, I, I I'll say this too. Uh, if if you want anybody really who's looking for inspiration on their top secret games. Uh, should really listen to there's a uh, I think the the website is spymuseum.org or something like that. But anyway, they do a podcast called Spycast, and it's actually done by this older gentleman. He's uh, he's a retired CIA agent, and uh, he worked in Berlin during the Cold War. It's oh, really wow. Neat. They bring their guests, include Jason told me about it, actually. And it was funny because I was talking to Jason the other night and I, I, I started recommending it back to him because I forgot that he had recommended it to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a neat, neat show. Uh, and he brings on former KGB operatives and, and he talks to and, and, and he brings on big names too, like people who used to be in the State Department, oh, wow. uh, you know, like not you know like big big dude uh you know honchos in the state department show up uh, and and they discuss policy during the cold war but it's a great thing to listen to if you're just looking for ideas i think or you can watch the tv show on fx the un-americans if you want some inspiration too you could do that or there is even one and and again jason recommended this to me and i started watching it uh it's it was it was made back in the 70s by the BBC and it was called the sandbaggers and it's awesome if you can download it it's so good it was so ahead of its time it's like 24 but done 20 years before it so what did they do instead of calling jack they beeped him on his beeper he had to find a phone or they called him politely oh. <laughs> <laughs> no but i mean it was it was a lot like 24 in the fact that it was Made in the 70s, but it had the format where you, you know, you almost had to watch the whole series to get the one plot. Uh, and, you know, back then, they didn't really do that. It was usually all nice and tied up by the end of the hour. Cool. Well, speaking of 24, that I don't know if you've got guys have gone to the website, the College Humor stuff. I think it's called collegehumor.com or whatever. They did a spoof on 24 from it was called 24 1980 style. Oh, man. And uh, Jack Bauer was going to defuse a bomb, and they, they couldn't get in contact with him, so they had to email him the directions and then beep him to call. And Jack had to run around the, the bad guy base trying to find a phone to contact them and then find a computer to download and print it on a dot matrix printer so he can <laughs> defuse the bomb in five minutes. So you have to say the bomb blew up, so. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. Anyway, let's head into uh, some sage advice. Sage advice. Sage advice. We have some emails this week. Uh, even though we emptied our email bag last week with Nick, me and my, Nick and myself, we yep. reached down and grabbed all those letters out and voicemails. And, it's the uh, email bag of holding, it seems like. Yeah. RFI staff at gmail.com, 570-865-48210, the hotline. 
First email comes from Josh. Greetings from the ancient past. I'm catching up on your old podcast, and a reader posed a question about magic resistance. DM Will said that he would give someone a 1% magic resistance per wish used. Then the conversion went on a bit. Oh, sorry, the conversion. Then the conversation is went on a bit about wishes, then continued about magic resistance. I'd like to hear more about your thoughts on wishes. From what I heard, DM Will believes that you can't modify wishes using the word end. DMs Nick and Vince seem to have no problem with it. Personally, I believe that you can word it any way you want as long as you can do it in a single breath. Would you mind doing a segment on this? Most of the DMs I've talked to or played with use wishes to screw anyone over, which makes one not want to use wishes. I've had one DM who didn't, but allowed anyone who says, I wish to have a chance of it coming true, but he also had a small Rolodex of charts, results, and consequences if the wishes came true. Keep up the good work, and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast. Well, neither do I, so... (laughs) So, I haven't listened to it in a while. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm actually backlogged on uh, Order 66 myself. I haven't really listened that much since they changed over to the new system because I'm not really digging it too much, to be honest. No, they do a good podcast. It's just right. for me. You're right. I fall under the same thing. I don't know. There's just something about it just hasn't quite caught my imagination. Maybe if I actually sat down and played it, I'd think differently, but I just actually... But they, they put on a good show. I mean, Oh, I absolutely. The, I mean, the state, and they're funny, but, you know. Yeah. You know, I haven't actually listened to that one yet. I may try it out. Well, good. D20radio.com or, um, yeah, I don't know what the actual Order 66 URL is. But. Um, you can find it right off the D20radio.com. They have links to all, to all the shows. So it's pretty simple once you get there. Yes. Cool. So, so what was the question? <laughs> wishes. Uh, wishes, pretty much. He wants us to do a segment on doing wishes again. and he Yeah, it sounds like wishes and wording. Yeah, he said that you and I, Nick, have no problem with people using the word end. Mm-hmm. I, ha- I have no problem. They want to use the word end. Sure, go ahead, use it. But that's just going to mess the, wor- the wish up completely. So, mm-hmm. I mean, with wishes, I mean, when he said like a 1% chance, anyone say, saying I wish, I think in a larger scale, I mean, that would be like a, a 1 in 100 chance of anybody in your game world. <laughs> Being able to, when they say, I wish, you know, blah, 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 blah. That's a lot of things popping into your reality that could really screw things up. So, um, my players, when they wish something, I make them write it down. That way it's just. Oh, yeah. When I get, when I last I played, when we had the duo wish, I mean, rewrote everything down. I mean, we must have, we must have stopped the game for at least an hour just trying to <laughs> figure out how we were going to word this wish. I'm not kidding. Well, I gave them 10 minutes real time on the clock. I said, I walked out of the room and I said, you guys could discuss. Be back in 10 minutes. Wow. That's it. Yeah. You know, I mean, when I was listening to his question, a couple of things came to mind to me. Excuse me. The first thing being how as a GM and, you know, you probably want your players to be on board with this too, but how are you guys, you know, when you're playing your game, looking at making the wish? Is it more from an out-of-character perspective or is it from an in-character perspective? Because I tend to like my players to stay in-character right. if they're doing things in-character. And in-character 
how likely really is it that a character is going to end a wish with the word end, knowing that his God is trying to screw him over? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, in ev- any fantasy story or, or fable that I've ever read, you know, uh, and I think the most prominent one being a thousand and one nights. Uh, but, uh, if, when you see a, a, a character making a wish, uh, they're not ending it with the word end They're They probably never came across one before. They'll probably never come across one again. They're wording it as in the language they would normally speak it you know what i mean they're not they're not using out of character game speak i guess you would say so for me i would be like really your character would do you think your character would say end at the end of it because if you do hmm, okay uh i don't think you would but if you think your character would justify to me why they would because they haven't never spoken like that before up until this point (laughs) And second, my other thought was when he said that most GMs use it to try to basically, you know, mess up the players uh, or the characters. Okay, I think that comes down to how, what is the intent of the wish? Is it, is it a wish that is going to be helpful uh, beyond just your character? If it is, you know, if the, if the party's in a tight spot and you're wishing that they can get out of that tight spot, I would be less inclined to mess with your wish, uh, which I think, and I think in character that would happen because I think, say it's a genie. I think a genie would be less inclined to screw up a wish. If it is an unselfish wish, if it is a selfish wish, then I think they would probably have no problem taking your exact wording and interpreting it in the way they wish to interpret it. No, I think so, yeah. disgruntled being in that whole lamp thing and just annoyed yeah. that they're being brought out. Yeah. So. Right. Yeah. And of course, if it's an Afrit that you're trying to get the wish from, especially if he's crazy, mm-hmm. uh, then he's probably going to try to screw it up anyway. And then he's probably going to attack you. Yeah. So maybe we should do like a, a show or a segment entirely on wishes. What do you think? I think there is a lot of fertile ground there. Yeah, I think so, too. Absolutely not. Next for email. Okay. <laughs> Fine. Yeah. Well, you didn't right. word your wish properly, so we can't do I it. I wish we had a show next time. <laughs> yeah. Wishes. I wish we, we had a show. Do what you wishes. want. Now we're do what we say. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. Thank you, Josh. Uh, we'll uh, add that to our ever-growing list. Next email comes from Tabo. Taboo. I apologize if I'm pronouncing it wrong. Hi, guys. I'm a new edition player and have been playing the old school recently. I noticed that magic users get a bit of a short stick when it comes to spells. In later edition, they get a bonus to spells when starting up the character, but get nothing in 1E. Yet, a cleric gets bonus spells. Don't you think this is a bit unfair and unbalancing for a class that at first or second level can be killed if sneezed on the wrong way? That's the end of the email. Okay. Well, uh, my answer is no. <laughs> yeah. I think it's perfectly fine because if they didn't die by beer, by being sneezed on, you would have way too many high level magic users running around. And at that point, uh, yeah, there's not there shouldn't be 
thousands upon thousands of 20th level magic users because they get really, really powerful. It, it's kind of a balancing act of the ecology of the magic user. Hey, you want to get really old school, the original cleric in D, original D&D, no magic, no spells at all in first level. Yeah, but so he was a fucking tank, though. Well, right. But, but just, with I mean, that goes without saying, though. I mean, right, right, because it's not until like level three you actually start getting uh, spells as a cleric from your god. The first few levels, mm -hmm. you're getting it from like his assistant, mm -hmm. just kind of like, eh, you believe. Here you right. go. Here's some stuff. It doesn't really matter. Now, but for magic users, I think what kind of balances that is later on. For one, they have more useful spells uh, overall than a cleric has at lower level, for the most part. Uh, also, I think for magic users, and I think this goes with all like the, the illusionist class as well, I'm, once they get higher in level, hey, they become very, very powerful. I mean, once they get up around 6th, 7th level, uh, a magic user is really going <laughs> to, you know, start showing how powerful he could be. I mean, look at, you know, with Fireball, Lightning Bolt, you got monster summoning spells, all those sorts of things. So, but yeah. I, one of those things that is from people who are more used to a um, uh, environment to where magic users tend to be a little bit more powerful at lower levels. One of the things that you can counteract this, and I've done this to make it more attractive to uh, the class more attractive to players who want to do something like that is I do like in my, my one campaign I'm, I'm, I'm running for my daughter and her friends is one of the things I instituted was using the, uh, an, an intelligence bonus for bonus spells, but I, I just use the wisdom chart in the player's handbook. Yeah. Okay. Just the same thing. Right. And you know what? It's worked out pretty well so far because even then, the bonus spells only cap out at fourth level, so it's not like you're gonna really. Uh, it's not there's not like a huge exponential power creep there. It's a few extra, and that's also depending on what their intelligence is. So you're not going to get any bonus spells unless your intelligence is a minimum of fifteen anyway, if I recall. So, you know, that's yeah, one I completely thing. agree. I mean, that's how I do it too, Nick. Yeah. Uh, and it's a little bit more something, and and that you might want to try that out. I mean, that might be worth his while. Yeah, that that's how I do it in my game. I I give them the I use the cleric table for the wisdom uh, bonus spells, and I allow them uh, magic users to use that uh, for intelligence stat. But you know, the way I look at it too is this: if you're the type of player. Too many players out there who, who who play a magic user at low level, I think. They don't really think outside of the box with that character class enough. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they, they're like, well, I'm a magic user. I cast spells. Oh, I'm out of spells. I guess I can't do anything. And I'm thinking, really? Why, why can't your character do anything? You're one of the smartest guys in the party, uh, and your limbs haven't stopped you know, you're not paralyzed. You, mm -hmm. you, why can't you, why can't you come up with non-magical things to do? And while a magic user is restricted heavily in their weapons, you know, we, 
why, you know, what I would love to see is somebody sit down at my table and play a first level magic user and and say, you know what, I'm going to give his highest stat to intelligence. That makes sense. I'm going to give his second highest stat to strength because Mm -hmm. you know what? He's first level. He's a brawny uh, young mage and he can he he can be like little john with the quarter staff <laughs> right you know it, it'd be fun to see it uh, i've actually heard of one instance where that was done and 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 the person was telling me they had a blast with it but i just love to see characters played outside the box i i agree or if i think also outside the box of the way like you said you know, all I do is lob spells, and once I'm done, what do I do? Sit in the back of the party and be a, a XP sponge. No, there's a lot of other things a magic user can do if at lower levels you're out of X amount of spells. Uh, you're Like you said, Chad, it's a, a statistically wise, should be the smartest one in the party as far as intelligence is concerned. To me, if I'm playing a magic user, at lower levels. Now, all of my, I have just a, a moderate amount of spells, but I'm also like the the party's sage in a way. If there's some knowledge about the world or about the area, I would I would think as a magic user, as a wizard, he would be able be able to impart some of that that knowledge. He, he should be knowledgeable about you know things of the arcane and the unusual. That's why I always give a bonus, like when they're going up against um, strange, unusual monsters, the, the chance of identifying it goes up pretty well if you're a magic user, because those are one of the things that they do. They study. They study weird monsters and things of that nature. That's how I kind of look at them. Oh, exactly. So, and you know, you know what? And, they- and also riddles. If there's a riddle to be solved, you know, a magic user should be right up there with the thief helping them solve the riddle, you know, if anything. I completely agree. And, you know, if... They study more than just the arcane, too. They're, right. they're, they're the people who know how to read. Yep. You know? They I mean, should be we, knowledgeable on history. They should be knowledgeable on geography. They're historians. They're scientists yep. to whatever degree that can be in your campaign. They should uh, be knowledgeable at least on what you would call alchemy. I would think at least exactly they might, you know, maybe they're alchemists. Uh, Maybe they have an understanding of herbology. Maybe they your cleric might have bit the dust, but you're out in the wilderness uh, and the, the, the magic user steps up and says, well, you know, I study a little herbology and I might be able to put together something that can help out here. And as and if that player turned to me as a GM and said, hey, I'm not a cleric, but is there anything I can do? to put together something that might aid in healing, I would be like, sure, let's take a look at that. You're smart. You have to study potions. Uh, You might be able to put together something. Sure. And you go into a city. Many times the magic user is uh, with a lot of times education is often a result of, of well, often endows one also with the ability to be a good speaker. Yes. So why you don't need a bard? Yep. He's the party diplomat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also how you could, and to get right down to as far as how you quantify a lot of those things, it's a matter of game mechanics. He's using a simple die roll, probably based upon the intelligence of the, of the character, you know, and depending on the degree of, of, I guess, of how tough it is to get it. Say you're trying to, you have your, your party there and they're trying to figure out, where in a region a certain um, 
tomb to a of a of a sl- of a old slain general is and there he's trying to find out some some lore about that well maybe it's a pretty average um, difficulty for that so maybe 4d6 and if it's below your intelligence you make it so something like that's how you that's how you quantify it as far as a game mechanic thing yeah just as I, I think so yeah yeah i so i guess at the end i would simply say you know if if you're the type of player who, enjoy, and there's nothing wrong with this, if you're the type of player who enjoys getting out there and being the hero, you know, right from the start, maybe Magic User is not the class you need to be playing. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you know, and I always say it takes a, a very patient person to mm-hmm. effectively play a Magic User from first level. It takes a person who doesn't, doesn't desire or crave the spotlight because they're not going to get it at the beginning. Uh, they might get some spotlight, you know, like we were talking, if they, if they do some of the things we were saying and perhaps in, in a, in a situation not so battle oriented, but if you're really concerned about, you know, being, you know, I don't want my character to fall over at the drop of a dime. Well, then don't play a magic user. Or if you right. do play a magic user, play him smart because mm-hmm. he is smart. Don't be the guy to run out there into the middle of battle. I learned this the hard way. The first time I ever played a, a magic user, was uh, back in middle school, and I uh, I was playing with this guy who's a really brilliant GM. Uh, he lives out in Kansas City, owns a game store now. Uh, but uh, I remember we came up to these these silver doors, and and when we opened them up, it, it was we were down in the base of a tower, I think, and we opened them up, and there was like basically there was a Gith Yankee, and we were looking in an outdoor area. It was like some sort of a gate. And the Gith Yankee lowers his javelin to us, and he says, by what sign do you enter? And everybody's quiet, all the fighters, and I decide to that will be my moment. And I run forward with my magic user, who's second <laughs> level, and I say, by the sign of the door. And he goes, that is incorrect. And lightning blasts out, and I die right there. Oh, well. <laughs> and the GM and all the players turned to me and said, now you know you have learned an important lesson on how to play a magic user. You never run out in front of the fighters. <laughs> he chose poorly he chose poorly (laughs) so yeah i'd simply end it with you know if you don't want to die the drop of a hat either be smart in how you play it or don't play that one yep cool well there we go and thank you for that last email comes in from the legend and he says Hi, I am really enjoying the show and the new edition of Chad. Chad is awesome with his knowledge, and he seems to be what the cast needs to round things out. Is it possible to keep him? <laughs> Maybe we can do a keep Chad please Kickstarter. Thanks to Legend. Well, I'm not averse to uh, donations. Well, uh, we did put out a, a bowl of milk outside, and Chad does keep coming back. So, uh, you know, okay. to go. Woohoo! That was your brother that wrote in, Chad, wasn't it? <laughs> it might have been my mom. Oh, okay. See, it was nice of your mom to write in there. Uh, I know. Uh, say I'm the handsomest guy in the world. <laughs> Chad will be here as long as Chad wants to be here. Absolutely. And Chad wants to be here. Although your money will make me want to be here even more. Oh, now he's talking about himself in the third person. Listen yeah. to him. Oh, Chad, now he's so. Full. Chad likes this show. Chad's not leaving. Oh, my. Chad just turned into the rock, apparently. (laughs) Can you smell what the Chad is cooking? 
<laughs> Any donations, you can go right to our website and uh, just hit the donate button and then donate whatever you like and put to Chad. And we'll make sure you'll even take electrum pieces. Yes, uh, we'll make sure Chad gets at least a penny of that uh, fund. So don't worry, hey, that helps. So, so that's our emails for this week. And uh, you want to write us RFI staff at gmail.com or you can. Uh, Voicemail us, 570-865-4210, the hotline. The hotline. That's right. Where martial artists are standing by to kick you in the face. Boop to the head. Boop to the head. Count some table, man. Typical of all the evil creatures in the world, I like to find one with table manners. What are you kidding me? I spent years cultivating the worst table manners on the planet. Table manners. Okay, this week on Table Manners, we're going to be uh, going back to the Oriental Adventures hardback book. Yay. Specifically, Yay. we're going to look at martial arts again. We're going to revisit martial arts, see if there's anything that we missed. And I think we got a really good, fresh perspective from this from Chad here, who's got a lot of experience in running Oriental Adventures, writing some uh, adventures for it. And so... Why don't we go in? Go ahead, Chad. Start us off with the uh, a semi roundtable discussion on, on martial arts and Oriental adventures. How we can make it better and any stuff we missed, any disagreements that we have. So go Sounds right on. Sounds good ahead. to me. Okay. All right. Uh, well, one of the reasons why I really wanted to to revisit the topic of martial arts and Oriental adventures, uh, I know that it was covered on an earlier episode. Uh, which I really enjoyed listening to, but I did disagree on the general consensus at the end of the show, which seemed to be that it was way too overpowered. Uh, now, I'd have to go back and listen to the show again to find out exactly why, but essentially, martial arts, I think, is a great addition if you're going to play Oriental Adventures. I don't know how much it fits in with a Western-themed Dungeons & Dragons game, but then again, I also don't use the monk in a Western-themed dragon game, uh, unless they're tonsured and read a lot, and they're not real great in battle either. But uh, one of the things I like about martial arts is that it does allow uh, you to get more into the whole, as they say, wuxia uh, flavor. And wuxia is, a, is, is kind of the word used for Asian fantasy, uh, primarily Chinese. I think Crouching Dragon, Hidden Tiger, that's actually considered wuxia. Uh, and what's cool about martial arts in the Oriental Adventures book is that, first of all, it's hard to get. You, you have to find somebody who's going to teach it to you. And that's not supposed to be easy. If you have a good GM, a good DM, he is not going to make it easy for you. And it could take several levels of time before you even find that master. At least that's how I run it. Now, once you do have it, you know, you're not going to all of a sudden just start running around like Jackie Chan. You're, you're going to have to, you're going to have to crawl before you can walk. Sort of like Mr. Miyagi did. Exactly. Paint the fence. Wax Paint the, the floor. Fence. You're going to be Painting a lot of fences before you're gonna be waxing a lot of. You're gonna wax the car. You're gonna do everything. Exactly, but now if we look at the uh, if we look at at page 102 of the Oriental Adventures book, Mm -hmm. uh, it it goes into the basics 
of a style. Because before you can learn martial arts, you have to have a style. Mm-hmm. And again, this is where I think a good DM is going to take a look at the setting that he's running. Are you in a primarily Chinese-themed setting? Or are you in a primarily Japanese-themed setting? Because they're vastly different. And vastly different types of martial arts come from there. Uh, If you're set in Kozakura or Wa, and I'm referencing uh, Karatura right now, just because it's the only really established uh, Oriental Adventures setting out there, and it's used with Forgotten Realms, but I use it for Greyhawk. Anyway, uh, if you're a Kozakura or Wa, you're probably using a hard style because if you're going to be analog to real history, Japan uh, and to a large degree Korea used uh, more uh, brute force in their martial arts. Kempo uh, is the way of the fist. It's basically how to punch somebody out. Uh, and there is also, you know, they do get into pressure points and all of that, but which would be considered soft. Yeah, so, like jujitsu, which is a little bit of what I know. Jiu-jitsu is like mm-hmm. using the your opponent against himself. It's I know in jujitsu, from what I learned, it's it's almost a most of the moves are like defensive. That's why it's like you consider it like it's a soft mm-hmm. type, just of like aikido art. too. And right. aikido like is very similar to way. jiu-jitsu, right? Yep. In fact, if you look at your styles here, uh, I would call I would call both jujitsu. And Aikido, Aikido, why did I say that? Aikido, I would call both of those a soft style. And you'll notice when you look at the style and how many just basic attacks they get per round, mm-hmm. if you're primarily doing just soft, and if, I, if somebody said I'm an Aikido master, I would say, okay, you're using a soft style, not a hybrid. You'll notice that soft styles get zero basic attacks per round. Yep. Now, as they add in principal body parts like a fist or, or say, a throw, uh, now that is also going to have its own basic attacks, and all that gets added together at the end to create the basic number of attacks per round that your style offers. But, you know, think about this. when With Aikido and, and Nick, as you know, with Jiu-Jitsu, you're really kind of waiting for them to attack you. Exactly. Yeah. I just remember what the, the, I took it for just a brief week when I was in the national guard, just some basic jujitsu. And it's about using the opponent against himself. It's a lot of throws. It's pressure points. It's dearming, disarming your opponent. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole lot of offensive like- stuff there. I don't think you want to de-arm somebody. Well, you know, I, I meant disarm. Well, yes, you could in, de-arm <laughs> them too with the right jujitsu. <laughs> you probably could. Actually, you probably could. Yeah. Yes, Especially when you get meant, into Brazilian jujitsu that evolves yes. from it, because that is um, a little more aggressive and it's more active in that you can be on your back and with someone on top of you, yet be the one controlling the fight. I, I yeah I, I imagine that Brazilian jiu-jitsu there's a lot more hits that are involved in with your standard jiu-jitsu it's, style. Brazilian jiu-jitsu is just the flavor of when I forget the name he came from Japan went to Brazil. Yeah, I know who you're talking he about. Tra- right? He trained he trained Helio Gracie. Mm-hmm. And Helio Gracie's the one that popularized it when he basically went around challenging anyone and everyone 
I to, believe his son does it too. Yeah, his son. Well, his sons, because there's Carlson Gracie, who then is relate. Then there's like Carlson Gracie, Hoist Gracie. Then uh, there's the grandsons Henner and Huron. Uh, and what you'll discover is they all have names that begin with R, but you make an H sound when you pronounce them. Ah, so yes, ah. that that's part of the Portuguese. Well, if you watch Steven Seagal, too, uh, in all of his movies, he's kicking butt, but he always waits until the guy comes at him. He'll even taunt right. them, I think, to get them right. to attack him. But right. Because yeah. Aikido doesn't really have any any first strike moves, right. I guess you would it, say. It's, you exploit the opening that your opponent gives you. Right. And then you hurt them. Yes. You know, it's funny you mentioned, uh, Chad, about like uh, the two distinct cultures like between china and japan and how is your oriental ventures going to be depending on the fighting styles i just saw this this past weekend for example at my my daughter's graduation she graduated to green belt in karate one of the th- now i know in karate she's learned about three katas right now which are the exercises for everybody outside there there's particular exercises a of various moves, and each one's called a uh, each stop. Each exercise is called a kata, and she's learned about three katas right now, and she's working on her fourth kata. And her sensei showed us uh, a kata. He's kind of going to import from kung fu, and it's oh, it's wow. just called number thirteen. But you could see the difference between uh, a, a, if it's called a kata in kung fu versus karate karate it's very it's a, much of it is could be very, very fast very um very deliberate but you could slow it up and pace it up but if, when he showed the one for kung fu it was very s- slow very deliberate but you, you could see the strength in it you know mm-hmm. Right. Oh yeah, yeah and, I, you could see there's a two entirely different styles. I, I, I maybe I could completely cor- wrong from my knowledge on kung fu, but what he showed me, what, what he showed us from the from the one kung fu kata, it, it is, it's a little more slow and a little more, um, and, and the slow, but it's powerful. So right, it's very and that's a lot like Tai Chi, karate. If, yeah, if you study Tai Chi, and when I was in, I, uh, I I spent six years living in in Tokyo, and and my boss was actually located in in Hong Kong, so I would fly over there every now and then to, whenever I had to see him face to face. And uh, I remember waking up one morning uh, when I was staying in Hong Kong and looking out the window. There was a parking garage across the street, and it was early in the morning, and there had to have been. 30 elderly people, both men and women, and they were all practicing Tai Chi on the upper lo- uh, top lay, uh, level of the parking garage. And, and it's a very slow, graceful looking. But a lot of that, a lot of the, the graceful moves you see, and, and it's actually, in, in, if you really want to get down to it, they call it Gung Fu uh, because mm-hmm. the K has a G sound. Uh, and, and Gung Fu really is just to, uh, translated to basically being good at something. So it's something you're good at. And, uh, now what they're doing is they're actually hiding a lot of actual moves. They're, they're mixing in some stuff that's just flowery with the actual move. And, and, and they did this back then because, and here again, this is why you got to find 
a uh, a master is that uh, and Steven Seagal is very cool. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm looking at notes going across. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, I know someone who knows his ex-wife, and oh, the stories she has about Stephen. Well, oh, ex- I'm sure there Rock are or, uh, his other ex-wife. It, it was the one that actually got him into movies. The f- um, yo, I don't know. I'm sorry. That I'm was a- uh, out for justice, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the uh, base. But oh. basically, Steven Seagal at home that you see in the movies is Steven Seagal at home. It would just be the two of them. Hi. I want something for dinner. He would walk around carrying swords on his hip when it was just them two alone at home. Yeah, actually, he does commercials back in Tokyo. So Uh, Seagal's a gamer? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. he he apparently LARPs as Steven Seagal. Oh, my God. That's like, well, there you go. Yeah. Life imitating art, art imitating life. Exactly. (laughs) Although I will say in his defense that when he came to, to, uh, to Japan the first time as a teenager, he, he, he went, and this ties actually into what I'm saying about how hard it is to find a master, uh, is that when he went to, uh, uh, there was some Japanese sensei that he wanted to study Aikido from, and I can't think of what his name was, but he was not accepted. Uh, because he was Gaijin, he was foreigner and, and they really are kind of guarded about that. Uh, the Japanese don't like sharing their, their secrets, uh, a lot of the time, uh, even more so back then, I'm sure, uh, with foreigners. And so he was told no. And then finally, I think he just kept bugging the guy and eventually, <laughs> eventually the guy said, okay, yeah, here's what I'll do for you. Come on, teach me. Come on. He kept doing that. Please. But eventually what he did was he said, okay, this is what I'm going to do for you. He goes, you can attend my classes, but you're going to be the test dummy. You're going to let everybody beat you up with the moves that they learn. And, you know, that's, he said, okay. And so he literally was, was, you know, they put the, uh, they put the the punching bag into the closet and he stood there (laughs) I'm just trying to picture him as a young Steven Seagal. It's like, oh, this is going to be so awesome. Finally, oh, this is going to be so great. And then okay. one day, let's, his let's, eyes let's, narrowed. Let's <laughs> get a real martial artist, John Claude Vett. No, I'm just kidding. Chuck <laughs> yeah. Norris. Chuck Norris, sorry. Chuck All right, Norris. Let's, let's, reel, let's reel each other back in here. Chad, why don't you uh, okay, let's well, yeah. more detail about how the style is and how the armor class works. Well, Exactly. And the, the, the whole reason I brought that up, though, is that your character should have a very hard time finding a master. And once he does, he does get to have the basic moves. OK, so that's going to be, you know, say you chose uh, a hard style and you chose your primary limb that is used for the style is the fist. We'll say Kempo. Chad, okay. excuse me for a second here. This is the GM making this style up right now, or is this the, the GM makes up the style? Although in the games, I have on occasion worked with my players to find out. I think it's best if you work with your players, find out what kind of martial arts they're looking for. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. I don't let them put it all together. I find out what kind of martial arts style they're, you know, what do you best compare what you're looking for to in real life? You know, and and what would you add to it when, you know, what would you subtract from it? And then I go in and I take the various special maneuvers, which we're about to get into. But uh, I I look at it and I say, is this hard? Is this soft? Is it hard soft? 
Uh, or, and then I say, okay, well, is it Kem- with Kempo? They're using the fist uh, primarily. Okay, so it's hard and it's fist. So then I go to page 102 and I say, okay, hard forms get uh, one attack per round. And if they use fist as their primary limb, uh, which in this case would be strike, uh, then they're going to get another one attack per round. But you add them together, and it is uh, two attacks per round. So they're going to get two attacks per round, but the fist strike is basic. Is It's a basic strike. It's not the iron fist, okay? This is really what they're going to use most of the time. A special maneuver should only be used uh, sparingly. Now, they're going to do 1d3 damage with that. So they get two attacks, they can do up to six points of damage plus any strength bonuses. And if they get a natural 20, they may be able to incapacitate or stun their opponent. I don't think that's overpowered, though. I think that's fine. I could do more damage with a longsword. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, if if you have to use common sense as a GM, if the guy's wearing plate mail and it's in a Western theme, the game, you know, you, I don't know how much damage you're going to do by punching a guy in plate mail and he's got thick quilting underneath it. Uh, So it's really best used against unarmed people. And this is another reason why it's best used in an Asian-themed Oriental uh, Adventures game. And I know a lot of people get irritated by the name of that book. uh, But uh, my wife is Japanese. It doesn't seem to bother her when I've shown it to her. But, you know, anyway, if you're going to use the Asian backdrop, then you're not going to find a lot of people wearing plate mail. And and the only people are going to be wearing heavy armor to begin with because it's very it can get very hot and humid over there. Mm-hmm. Is uh, you probably find you know some uh, studded leather, uh, and you might find some splint mail, maybe not a lot. And it's not it's it's it, though that's really more of a ceremonial armor uh, in Japan. But you're going to find a lot of people who aren't wearing armor. And that's why it became very useful over there. And the peasants could learn it and they could actually fight back a little bit against the tyranny that they faced. Uh, your, your nobles and your samurais wearing some type of heavy armor, mostly. They could be. And, and you know, and again... And this, that's almost always for just like war purposes anyway. Yeah. To be totally honest, samurai did not walk around wearing, you know, their big Kabuto helmet, or I think that's what it's called, or, or whatever. They, they walked around wearing a yukata, which yeah. is like a robe. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had their swords with them all the time, but they didn't walk around in armor. I mean, if they went out to a big battle... Then sure. they might they be all dressed up in their armor, but if they're just walking through the village that they're uh, the head of, they're they're probably not wearing all their armor. And if in if somebody rode into their town, you know, for instance, look at the Seven Samurai. Watch that movie; it's a brilliant movie by Kurosawa, and you can see, you can literally see a traveling band of samurai as they enter a village, and they're not wearing the armor. <laughs> Just really, if they had done that, that would have been very suspicious to the uh, to the city guards and the people in the city. And it could have even been taken as an insult. <clears throat> so you want to be very careful. But if you're using martial arts, this is and you're playing a game that is trying to be somewhat analog to real history. I think that's when martial arts can really be cool because then it becomes more useful. 
Now, assuming that you've done all this and you've you've learned your basic style, which, by the way, your character had just spent at least a month in character doing. Now, if you want to learn the special maneuvers, you have to continue on with your master. Well, you, you technically can learn it without the master, but you can learn them on your own so long as you're still visiting your master for lessons. And you have to do at least six hours of that per week. So you're looking at still just about an hour a day every week. If you don't, you'll never learn the special maneuvers because those are the secrets locked within the style. And the master's not going to teach you that if he doesn't think you're respectful enough to, to, you know, attend his lessons and learn his wisdom. He's not going to do it. So you're going to have to do that if you want to get those cool special maneuvers. And you're not going to, it's like magic user spells. You're not going to start out with the death touch. You're going to start out in, say, our scenario where you're using something like Kempo, a hard style with the fist. You'll probably start out with the iron fist, which is nice because it can do up to D10 and damage. Uh, but if you learn that and, it's, and the fist is not your primary uh, body part, it's going to eat up all your attacks that round because you're only going to get to do it once and then you're done. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, you know, again, it really depends on what style your character is doing. Is the player willing to put aside all the time that it takes to learn these maneuvers and continue those lessons as long as they want to continue getting maneuvers? And are they willing to learn it in the proper order? Because you're going to learn it weakest to most powerful. Yeah, And you only get to spend two proficiency points uh, on maneuvers per level. Unless you're a Kensai, which case at first level, they're able to uh, declare. And this is if they declare that their primary weapon is a martial arts style as opposed to the sword or another weapon. Then they can get a, a, an additional uh, proficiency slot that they must by the way, put towards martial arts. Okay. So, you know, again, it, it's, I don't know how overpowering it is. I mean, yeah, some of the special maneuvers are pretty cool, but then again, they also, if you fail on one, uh, there's some pretty drastic, uh, pretty bad, uh, you know, you may lose your attacks for the next round following that. If you're say you're doing a flying kick and you miss, uh, if you're doing a eagle claw and you or a crushing blow and you fail or fumble, you just hurt yourself. Your arm now is might be broken. Uh, like yeah, I actually I'm looking in the book right here, like one of the uh, movement uh, maneuvers, uh, prone fighting. Um, it's constant, but the limitation is the character can perform no other special maneuver when prone except for instant stands. So it, any other special maneuvers, you can't do them if you're prone. Right, and you so should never be able to disadvantage. do... You can never do two special maneuvers in the same round, as far as I know, and I, I'm pretty sure that's... I'll look at it again, but I'm pretty darn sure that it's one special maneuver. Now, if you're using Iron Fist, and the fist is your primary body part for your style, you do get to use it twice. But it's not like you can use Iron Fist and then go turn right around and do a great throw. The, the maneuvers are just maneuvers are very tricky and they require 
It's, it's not like one of your basic punches, which is why another reason why people will probably be using their basic attack form attacks more often than they'll be using their special maneuvers. And a second reason why that would be is because you don't want to reveal uh, your special maneuvers unless you have to, especially if you're up against uh, people who are uh, a foe who's knowledgeable in the different styles, because it's like a signature move. And they'll know immediately what style you're practicing, who taught you it, and what are the counters, if any. I was going to say, what are the counters uh, to that style? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or they may even be trying to learn it, and you're supposed to guard it with your life. You're not supposed to teach other people that that style. Uh, and it, it is kind of neat uh, when I run it, at least I like to play up the whole point where somebody does an eagle claw, and the other person they're fighting stops and says, Oh my goodness, that's the eagle claw. You practice the northern dragon style. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and I watch a lot of, of, of martial arts flicks. And, and they do that a lot in those movies. <laughs> yeah, my do. goodness, that's a Wu-Tang move. <laughs> and, you know, From you the could, Wu-Tang clan. That's no, right. Heck. Sorry. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, you could be practicing an outlawed style. And if you're doing that, please elaborate. Oh well, let's let's simply go no further than to look at the Tokugawa era of Japan, uh, or I think that was the Edo period. Uh, this was during the time of the Tokugawa shogunate. And if you've ever seen Shogun the movie, mm-hmm. yes, uh, his character really is is based off of Toranaga is based off of I believe Tokugawa, and. Tokugawa outlawed martial arts uh, to the peasant class. So they had to hide their abilities. They, they, their heads would, they, Japan at that time really only had one punishment. Let's face it. They, you lost your head. Uh, But if they even suspected that you knew martial arts, a samurai was more than entitled to take your head. No kidding. I didn't know that, that there was a time where the, Martial arts styles were, they were. Oh yeah, definitely in China. Outlawed. In China, they were forced to. Uh, uh, I believe I forgot what period. I think it was right around the time of the revolution, but uh, when they turned communist, but they all had to cut their uh, their cues off. Also, but yeah, no. It, it the the when the uh, at the beginning of what became the Edo period. There was a peasant soldier. Now, he could never become a shogun because he was not from one of the five families. But he could become something what uh, they, they referred to it in shogun as a taiko. And, and there really was a guy like this. And Tokugawa really did work for him, and, and Tokugawa succeeded him. But because he was a peasant and he rose to such a high rank, he became paranoid. He never wanted another peasant to be able to do the same thing. And so from that day forward, he made an edict that peasants... Only the samurai class were allowed to carry weapons and practice martial arts. Wow. So you have to be very careful. Uh, and and say you're, uh, if you look at a lot of wuxia, which is Chinese fantasy, uh, if you look at a lot of the wuxia out there, and there's and it's very hard to find, by the way, in, in, in English. It's, it's, it's prevalent in, if you're looking for it in Mandarin, but uh, it's very hard to find it in English. But... One of the big themes, and this gets also into the the whole difference between doing something kind of analog to Japan or something to China, is that oftentimes 
the uh, uh, you know you, you you be up against uh, in China you were often up against uh, some despot emperor or dynasty and their governors like the Manchu were constantly on the lookout for uh, their foes who might be using a signature move that would declare them to be of that outlawed band. Oh, so, so mm-hmm. that wasn't that the movie Hero. Yeah, it was well, kind of uh, like that. Hero, yeah, you, uh, that's a great movie, by the way. Yeah, fantastic film. It's brilliant, and it's one of the only ones where you get to see Donnie Yen, who is one of my favorite martial art uh, uh, guys, fight uh, Jet Li. And and Donnie Yen's kind of like, just as Jet Li was kind of inherited the mantle, you might say, of uh, Jackie Chan or Bruce Lee, uh, Donnie Yen has inherited the mantle from Jet Li, in my opinion. In fact, they wanted Donnie Yen to be in the movie uh, uh, Forbidden Kingdom, uh, but uh, he turned it down. Anyway, yeah, but exactly. In that movie, you will see them using moves, and you will see the other one remarking on it and identifying what school mm-hmm. of movement it is. And, right. and this can be really fun in a game. If you get players that, are, that watch a lot of martial arts movies like I do, they'll actually jump right into it. And they'll be like, you know, I, all I have to do is, oh, he does the, he does the, uh, the, the three finger, no, he does the no shadow kick. Yes. And, uh, or like and, in Kill Bill Volume 2, the five finger exploding palm technique. There you go, where the fist of the Northern Star. There you go. Yes. <laughs> You're dead. You just don't know it yet. You just don't know it yet. <laughs> <laughs> he explodes. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's it's fun because, you know, they would jump out there and be like, oh, he's he. And they would have their character, you know, point this out to the foe. And and, and I, this is another uh, great thing about it. He knows the crane technique. Exactly. And you can have pauses in the battles. It's not like when you're fighting orcs where it's just swing, 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 swing until somebody dies. They actually dialogue with each other when they're doing this. And, you, and, you say, and then you stop, you go, ha-ha, you know drunken monkey technique. <laughs> ha-ha! <laughs> you, you, you stuttered out our Wu Jen the Juwen. Exactly. And you just brought up a very good point, by the way, Nick. Uh, one of the people earlier in the episode during Sage Advice asked, I don't want to be a magic user and die off the bat, or, or, or I don't have enough spells to be of use after I run out of spells. Okay. Oriental Adventures is the game for you. Yes. Because you can play a Wu Jin martial artist. Mm. Yeah. When spells are done, the buck kicking begins. There you go. <laughs> whenever, whenever I ran these games, Chad, I've always run into the problem where these people wanted to use martial arts, which I'm fine with, but also mm-hmm. arguing the fact that they could still wear their armor while we're using martial arts. So And again, this is where as a DM, you have to be like, all right, common sense time out here. <laughs> You know, yeah, right. be like the armor was never designed to be used. You know, the, 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 the samurai armor was not designed to be used with gung fu moves. No. You know, you don't it's that's why you don't see samurai practicing, you know, Wing Chun. It, it, it doesn't happen. The flexibility is not there. I thought that was a group from the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> Wang Chung. Everybody Wang Chung tonight. Excellent movie. I don't know if you've seen it, Chad. Is Flying Swords of the Dragon Gate. I have seen that. It's a very good movie. Yeah. Another good and one. Donnie Yen's in that movie, I believe. Is he? I don't remember. It's a while ago since I've seen I think that. he is. Oh, no. You know what? Jet Li's in that movie, not yeah. Donnie. Yeah. Sorry. I was going to say. Another good one is Mercenaries and Assassins. Watch that one. It's got Donnie Yen. It's one of his best ones, I think. But anyway, anyway, yeah. Uh, So you're right. 
if and this is when as a GM I step forward and I say you can't do that. And they say, what do you mean I can't do that? I know the style and I can wear armor. I say, all right, you can wear you can armor. You do either or. <laughs> yeah, you can do either or, but you're not going to be able to do both. Right. Uh, and, and, and if you're running a game, like if, if, if you're in one of my games, you don't really need to be wearing all this armor all the time because you'd probably be the only ones doing it, as I was stating before. Mm-hmm. So you probably, you know... You can use your weapons, when, and which is always preferable, even to martial arts. Uh, they're going to do samurai sword. A, 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 you're going to do more damage with that probably than you are if you're basic punch. Uh, and, you know, if most of the other guys you're fighting probably aren't going to be wearing lots of armor. So it's going to look a little out of place if you are. Right. And plus, with the different styles you get an AC bonus, so that is your armor. Exactly. So you do get an AC bonus. AC bonus plus your, uh, I think a dex mod, I would think applies too, doesn't it? Right. Yeah, the dex would get to be applied to that. So at that point, you don't need to be lugging around massive armor. Right. Because it's, I would say, yeah, you can wear your armor. You lose all your AC bonus from your martial arts. Which you would, because the martial arts bonus is for only effective when you're using. You have to be actively engaged using that martial arts form. You can't be yep. eating dinner. It's it's not, you know, it's, yeah. it's not a ring of protection. It's not stone skin. It doesn't go wherever you go. It goes wherever you go when you're using it. Right. right. Unless you're Steven Seagal, at which point you would probably use it 24-7. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> so I no, can't talk Chuck like... Norris. Chuck <laughs> Norris would be like that. Yeah. So I guess at, at the end, end of the day, I would simply round it out by saying this. Use correctly, I believe it can, be a, a, it can add a lot of fun to your game. Used by people who just are looking for ways to make their power gaming character more tweaked out, it's really probably not going to work, but it's also, if you get a GM or a DM, uh, sorry, I'm just so used to saying GM, but if you get a DM who's not very familiar with it and you're able to roll that one past him, I want my armor class all the time and I want to be able to wear my armor. And, and if he allows it, it's going to ruin the game, but you know, when it's played correctly, it's fun. When it's not, it's not. And that's all I got to say on that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, one more thing I will add. Uh, if you do end up doing it, uh, uh, just keep in mind, uh, just my own little uh, pet peeve, try to keep it in the, in the uh, culture. Uh, try to keep it reminiscent of the culture that your character is in. Uh, if you're in a Chinese setting, why would they be using lots of, strictly like i mean obviously based off of japan moves i guess it's your world you can say that they you know that that came from there but uh you know i just for me it it takes away from the fun when people start adding it's like monks in western games i don't like it because i i can't justify it i can't rationalize it well monks in western games for me i always think of the ones in the you know the big trenches from the big heavy brown robes with the big cross that's not what they were based off of but that's in my games. That's what they are with oh, the okay. shaved head, brother. Such right. And such. Except they have the agility of a ninja. But yeah, well, I. That's how I viewed them as well. As like your friar tuck. Yeah, that is a, the monk in my game. 
Briar Tuck with the five finger death touch. Exactly. (laughs) I'm not going to say to anybody out there listening, uh, because I don't want to down my stock. (laughs) I'm not going to tell anybody they can't do something. I'm just saying that, you know, it's all relative to taste. And Mm -hmm. my taste is I like to keep things close to home, I guess you'd say. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you do end up using it, though, Dragon Magazine's got several uh, issues out there that that go into it. And there's a really good one called Flying Feet and Lightning Hands uh, by Lynn Carpenter. And he gives a lot of additional special maneuvers and more information on martial arts. Uh, but I can't remember what issue that is. And I'll have I to find that. I think he talks about the, the French martial artist Savat. They yeah. could. And you yeah. could definitely do it. You could do Muay Thai. Yeah, uh, you could make your principal body part leg and arm for Muay Thai. Right. Yeah, so. it's like when I look at if you go on page one hundred one, it says common martial arts types, and it breaks them down. It lists jujitsu, but it doesn't list any locks. Yeah, I don't really agree. Now with that was one thing in the book that I wasn't crazy about. I didn't. I don't go by that table. If I'm if somebody wants to learn something equivalent to kendo, we work it out because I I didn't think they did a great job on on the comparisons there. And, and, right. You know, but otherwise, I liked it. Yeah, it's like their breakdown of jujitsu reminds me more of a judo than yeah. jujitsu. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So anyway, though, uh, I will find the uh, unless you know it off the top of your head, Matt, the the dragon issue that had uh, Lynn Carpenter's flying feet and lightning hands. I can look that up. Let's to the dragon decks. (laughs) Yeah, I know 151 was a big uh, Oriental Adventures themed Drag magazine while Matt's looking that up and I'm stalling time for him. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what? Actually, there's another article, too, and I believe it came from the same issue by Rudy Thawberger, and it's called Things Your Sensei Never Taught You. And it goes into a lot of uh, it goes into a lot of the whole training process. It's 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 a good read, too. I believe there's even some sage advice in Dragon magazines that talk about this. Yes. Lynn Carpenter's was in 164, page 11. Mm-hmm. And then there was even a name generator and for later editions, the Playful Phoenix Fist versus Four Scholars Boxing. And that was in Dragon 289, page 76, if you need inspiration to name your new fighting style. And that's a lot of fun, too. I think that's half the fun is coming up with a with a style name because there really was a northern dragon style so i always came up with what i called western or eastern dragon style in my game i think there's a southern dragon style too i think that aeg did a wonderful job taking this whole entire setting and making it into their own world for legend of the five rings oh yeah that that was that was actually very well done anyway so let's expand upon this in our next segment coming up next I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want, but are a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Alright, so that probably is a good segue into the next session. DM rules. 
And on this section, I wanted to cover a little bit about if, so you've decided to do an Oriental Adventures game. Sounds like a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what are the, what, what are next? a couple things you need to think about? Well, Timmy, <laughs> I'd say the first thing you got to do, if you're going to do something, if you're going to, if you're going to use uh, an Asian setting for your, uh, for your Dungeons and Dragons, come up with a culture, uh, a, a part of Asia that you want to mirror. Uh, now, obviously, you can create a completely unique uh, mixture if you want. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, so long as you follow certain rules you create for yourself and you don't stray from them, you know, because cultures do follow norms. But it's easiest if you simply take an area uh, of existing Asia, just as it's easiest to do so with Western-themed games of Europe. Uh, and if you're going to do that, then it's a good idea to do a little bit of research into the fantasy literature, if you can, of that area, because they do differ. Uh, not all countries in Asia are the same. <laughs> so uh, if you're doing something based in, you know, uh, kind of comparative to China, then you're probably going to want to use the bad guys are often in, in Chinese literature. The bad guys are often uh, basically the man, you might say. They, they, they always talk about, you know, the evil governor or, or the emperor uh, because they, had a, they were not like Japan. They did not keep one imperial family through their entire history. Uh, actually, not even. Well, I, I, I don't know. I can't remember or not if Japan did, but I know they more or less kept the same imperial family in Japan. Uh, in China, it, it, it was the dynasties. You had the Han dynasty, you had the Qing dynasty, you had uh, several dynasties. And depending on whether or not you were for that dynasty, they, they could often be characterized as bad people in charge. So a lot of times it was the peasant hero who was fighting in a Robin Hood fashion uh, the 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 authority, but if you're basing your game in more of say uh, a Japanese set setting, you probably don't want to go that route so much. At least not if you're trying to follow uh, an analog to the actual uh, fantasy stories made in you know uh, told in Japan. Because in Japan they 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 worship the emperor, and and it was not a fluid dynasty that sat there. Uh, it, it, now the shoguns were fluid and the five families, and you could definitely have, uh, an evil shogun or taiko or ruler, uh, or even an evil samurai who's in charge of a village. But for the most part, the Japanese tended to, uh, they liked authority. They liked order and they didn't tend to write, uh, they, their, their mythology tended not to really, uh, I don't know. Uh, throw their nobility under the bus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, again, this is where it comes down to simply doing a little research on the web and taking a look at what their fantasy literature is like. And that's if you want to be, you know, kind of realistic to the way theirs is. Obviously, again, you don't have to do that. You can decide that you're going to basically treat it just like you imagine it. And that's fine. Although I will tell you, when I lived in Japan, uh, one of the things the Japanese thought so hilarious about Westerners were their preconceived notions. 
because they thought really? it was ridiculous. <laughs> so what, so what I always do Godzilla fun. didn't rampage through Tokyo? Oddly enough, week? no. And, oh, and when I first got to Japan, try as hard as I might, I could not find people in kimonos with swords walking around. Oh. In fact, the only swords I ever found for sale, really, were the ones that had already been passed down through three different sets of Gaijin tourists. But uh, that said, okay. Uh, So uh, now let's say that you've done your history. uh, You're wanting to run a game that that is kind of set more or less along what if somebody from China or Japan were to sit at your table, they would not start laughing. Uh, at what they feel are preconceived notions that are totally wrong, uh, unless you, of course, you tell them right up front that this is not going to be anything like where they came from and, and you're not even trying to base it on that, then I guess that's cool. Otherwise, uh, say you've done your history, you've, you've read, you know, you've, you've read Journey to the West, which is considered the first novel ever written in China. Uh, about the Monkey King. If you ever seen, uh, I believe, what was it, Forbidden Kingdom with Jet Li and Jackie Chan in it? Uh, it's it's kind of a version of Journey to the West, uh, which, by the way, even people in Japan uh, know Journey to the West. It's it's that is just everybody there knows it, uh, and it, it's it's really neat, and it's very hard to find in English. But it is wuxia, totally wuxia. It is fantasy set in Asia, so it makes a very good model to look at. If you want to really set a neat, I think would be a very neat. And uh, and again, you know, this is what I think would be neat. You may think differently, but I think it'd be neat to do something that's really heavily based in their real fantasy. If you're going to set fantasy in their land, why not use their fantasy? It's there. All you have to do is find it, read it, and then model it around your campaign the same way you model Tolkien or Robert E. Howard around your campaign. Uh, now, you did all of that, we'll say. But what is the plot of my adventure? I don't know. Well, I'm what glad you asked. the plot of your adventure? Yes. <laughs> because, uh, well, again, it depends on the culture. <laughs> but it could be if you're setting it in a Japanese-centric type setting, you were invited to a Hanabi festival, which is the uh, uh, cherry blossom festival they have every year. And it's a big event. And a lot of times... Uh, everybody gets together for it. They go and they basically picnic underneath the cherry blossom trees. Uh, the, mm-hmm. Oh, and yeah, it's basically like a picnic. And I, mean, I thought uh, you were picking Nick. Yeah, that's yeah. I, 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 <laughs> hey, <laughs> oh, come on now. But yeah, so that would be a great. Say you want to do something like uh, the heir to the shogun has just been kidnapped during the Hanabi festival. You could turn it into a mystery, uh, something like uh, Salt Marsh uh, in, in oh, its okay. layout, you know. Or if you want to do a dungeon crawl, what if, what if say, the, uh, the flying sword of, an, of Jun Li, which is actually an actual magical item, uh, has been kidnapped from the Temple of Four Winds, and it has been kidnapped by a dragon. And dragons in Asia are not like dragons in the West. Dragons in Asia have a very set purpose, and they are considered immortals. And if one of these immortals were to do this, uh, and Chuck Norris is also considered immortal, and he's the bomb. Sorry, I'm yeah, reading well, my notes. <laughs> but, uh, 
But if now your character is, for some reason, this dragon has taken the, the flying sword of Jun Lee from the temple and up onto the mountain of five elements. And your characters now must have been elected to go forth and, and recover it. There you got a dungeon crawl. But it is going to be slightly different. Uh, it's not it's not really your typical thing. Your your characters are, are are probably going out. First of all, they're wondering why would a dragon do this? Because in the East, a dragon wouldn't just capriciously go and grab the sword and run away with it. The, his bosses within the celestial bureaucracy would probably not be very happy with him if he did it. So there must be a reason. Oh, I smell another mystery somewhere. Mm-hmm. But you still have a dungeon crawl. Uh, so yeah, you have a lot of possibilities with with asian set adventures because they are so set out in such a uh, uh bureaucratic form that you can have mysteries within dungeon crawls you can have you can have a, a really fun i did an adventure uh at GaryCon a couple of years ago it was called red crane white fox and it was based upon the idea i said it in kozakura uh, and it, the idea behind it was that a powerful daimyo, uh, his, which is like a lord, his son was kidnapped. And the party had to go forth and recover it. But they didn't really the, – the first thing they had to do was figure out who kidnapped him. And so to do that, they had to go to the, uh, to the Red Lantern district, I guess you would say, where the courtesans were, basically the hookers. And they had to find this uh, powerful mistress who went by the name of Daikumo, uh, which is like giant spider translated. And actually it was a ogre magi uh, in disguise. But rather than fight the ogre magi, they had tea with the ogre magi Mm. and discussed why it would be in the ogre magi's best interest uh, to honor the will of the son of heaven and uh, which actually I didn't use that terminology because that would have been more Chinese. But, uh, you know, basically they should honor the daimyo who has allowed this ogre magi to continue operations within his city uh, by revealing the location of this ninja clan that lives up in the mountains that actually was paid to do it. Uh, and the ogre magi was simply an intermediary uh, for the real bad guy to hire the ninja clan. So. Basically, they had to do a lot of of sleuthing, and then they got to go up into the mountains and fight ninjas. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I love the idea, though, that you have, I think, more opportunity in the Asian set games to do something like have tea with an ogre magi than you might in a Western where it's kind of a, I see a monster, I attack it. Yeah. Which, of course, there are a lot of Western games, mine included, that do not always follow that. Uh, you know, follow that formula, but so many do right. that it's almost become taken for granted. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, no worries. Uh, in Eastern games, diplomacy plays a much bigger factor in being able to discuss what the situation and determine a way both parties can save face and come out looking okay. Exactly. Because exactly. combat, there's a win. Combat, there's a winner and a loser. Right. But if you can... Avoid combat, but do it in such a way that both parties come out looking good. 
that's how you can advance the story. Right. That's that whole honor thing. Honor. You have gained honor by doing that. You've increased your face by defeating somebody without ever drawing your sword. Right. Mm -hmm. And there is another, and this ties back to the whole martial arts Uh, in, in China. They, you know, a lot of times if you had two very well known, respected masters and one wanted to challenge the other one, First of all, they they generally not be rude to one another. Uh, secondly, they may sit down and again they may have tea, and then with an audience of of who they both accepted as as judges or maybe even just them if they really trust one another, uh, they wouldn't even fight. They would simply one would tell him what he was going to do, and the other would say how he was going to counter it, and this would go back and forth until finally one would say ah. You won. And he would stand up, bow, and leave. And they never actually fought. But they know how it would have turned out had they used these moves against one another. Uh, and, and so that, once again, gets back into the whole honor thing. You know, you're dealing – you don't want to be a bar, some uncouth barbarian who runs around beating up everybody because that's not going to get you far in, in this world. Now, I, actually, you can be a barbarian. But even the barbarians in Asia have rules of protocol that they follow. So uh, I would say at the end of the day, and this is my thing for creating an adventure. If you're going to create a venture, think about a few things. What is the setting? What are the norms for the fantasy of that setting? Uh, and then what are the actual cultural norms? How would things actually probably work out in, in, in that setting? And with, if you know all of this and you know the way that stories play out over there, I think you have more than enough information to create an adventure that will be very true. Well, it's true as you can make it uh, to the backdrop, the setting. And I think it'll be something that the players probably haven't gotten to play a lot of before. And I think they might really enjoy it or they might hate it. So that's really cool. Yeah, and, and again, you know, there are different schools of thought, too, as far as how much you want to make it, uh, you know, just like in Western fantasy, there's high fantasy and low fantasy campaigns. Uh, when I did a Red Crane, which was based on the fact that the uh, the Daimyo's crest was a red crane, I think of the Jowl symbol, Japan Airlines symbol, uh, okay. and, and the white fox was because one of the members of the party, and I didn't tell, I only told that member of the party and nobody else knew was actually a fox hingeoki, uh, but it was a good fox hingeoki, and it was a guardian of the daimyo's son, kind of like a guardian angel, and it was working with the party to recover the uh, the son. And, yeah. and 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 at the end of the game, they revealed you know why they were going to such great lengths to keep the party going to yeah. find the son. Uh, but you know, so that was kind of fun, but. Uh, yeah, but if you want to do that was probably more low magic, though, if you want to do something, the one I'm working on now called Six Deadly Dragons, which will be a Gary Con, we very high magic because it's set now more in China and it's going to be using lots of over the top, uh, uh, you know, uh, wire work type martial arts. It's going to be very much more like Crouching Dragon, Hidden Tiger. Uh, there's a Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be more in that vein. And, you know, that's just because I wanted to try it the other way around this time. Crouching player, hidden GM. Yes. <laughs> yes. Running GM. Angry yeah. player, running GM. There you go. 
<laughs> so that's what I would say as far as creating adventures uh, in, in using uh, the OA, uh, you know, Asian set uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Does anybody else have any thoughts on that? Well, it's a lot of thought put into it. And I didn't, I ran one campaign for our podcast, Legend of Fin Fang Foom, way back in 2011 or 12. And I didn't put as much thought into it as you did. And I'm sorry that I didn't at the time, actually. Well, hey, but you know, I mean, again, it, it can be as complex or as simple as you want to make it. There can be fun had in both versions. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's a game. You, you yeah. figure out what your players want and that's what you give to them. And so long as so long, you know, I hear a lot of people say you play what your players want. As long as you're having fun, too. I I can have an entire table sitting around and all they want to do is dungeon crawl. And I'm not going to give it to them because I I, I won't have any fun yeah. running it. So more than likely, what I would do is simply not run that group. <laughs> I could even, I could, mm-hmm. it could even go so far as if you want to do a campaign where you can intermesh both uh, east and west. And I think what you, uh, a way that you could do with that, I, I think is if, again, if you look at the, the writings of Robert E. Howard, a lot of that, his, his world of, of the, the, the Hyborian age, was a mix of all those sorts of things. So if you if someone felt like, you know what, I want to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and put it together, I think that's another way you can get some inspiration. If you want to get away from the more historical aspects, but if you want to make like a synergist a synergy of the of the two East and West, you could do it that way, I, I would think. No, you definitely can. And Robert E. Howard did do quite a bit uh with the East. Conan sometimes I think Conan spent more time in the east than he did really up in the northern areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and, 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 you know, I know there was another episode you guys did on psionics, and I know a lot of people aren't fans of first edition psionics. And uh, my stock may drop here now, but I am. <laughs> uh, but again, I, I look at it this way. It's how you interpret something. You right. know? Uh, if you want to run Asian magic, you say like something in the style of Tibetan, you know, uh, mysticism, then I, I think psionics is just fits hand in glove with that. Right. Uh, if you read Robert E. Howard's people, the monolith, uh, uh, then you'll, the, basically it is a group of evil Tibetan style monks, uh, that are called sorcerers. He calls them sorcerers right. and he says they practice dark sorcery. And if you read their dark sorcery, how he describes it, they're using psionics. I mean, there's no really other way to interpret it. It talks about if their will, if their will is broken, you know, if you break their concentration, their magic fails. Uh, It's all about and they don't make hand motions and they don't say words. They simply stare at you and things happen. Uh, And and they're very Tibetan style. So I think you could really incorporate psionics from first edition and it would it would make sense in that case it would work you could rationalize it which i'm a big guy if i can't rationalize it i won't do it uh but i can easily rationalize that uh so that you know that would work well another adventure you mentioned where if you want to cross the eastern and western themes of fantasy look no further than the series of desert of desolation which we talked a little bit about you have a big desert and it sits right on the crossroads of East and West. Uh, and in real history, you know, we called it the near East. 
you know, that, that, you know, the Sahara and all that. And what a, what better place if you were going to do a hodgepodge of, of, of cultural differences within mm-hmm. one game. I think that is just tailor made for it. So that's what I got to say on that. Yeah. <laughs> all right, cool. There is some information about writing up a campaign and we'll head into our next segment. Are you saying that I put an abnormal brain into a seven and a half foot long gorilla? Creature Feature Theater. It's alive! It's alive! And now we are at the Creature Feature Theater, and it just wouldn't be an Oriental Adventures creature feature theater if it didn't involve some sort of spirit because you'll find a lot of the creatures are spirits of people that have had things wronged and they died in a violent manner and this one is the con tinth it is on page 118 of the oriental adventures book and this takes the shape of a young maiden who died before her time and they typically get bonded to a tree and instill fear in all of those that uh, would pass near because when you look at their stats, they're not much. I mean, AC7, 1D6 damage, blah, 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 nothing big. It's their special powers that are really fun. For you see, they have a laugh. And this is like the creepy, creepy, haunting laugh that you would hear. And all within 20 feet have to make a save, a save versus death. And if they fail this save, they don't die, but they're pretty freaking close because they go insane. And this insanity reduces their intelligence and wisdom to two. Ah, shit. So, uh. Yes, so you have a two intelligence and a two wisdom should you fail this saving throw. It is curable by a heal spell, so it's not the worst in the world. You can, you can get better. However, if they happen to, say, your cleric happens to fail that save, you're going to have some issues when you have a crazy <laughs> cleric running around who is too dumb to use any of his spells. Same with the wizard, or really pretty much anyone. They also have the ability to possess people. Oh, wow. So... Th- They will drive you insane, then take over your body. Normally, they're only active at night because they're much like dryads bonded to a tree. So, they hide in the tree during the day, and at night, they're active. But when they possess you, no, they just keep possessing you. Night or day, doesn't matter. (laughs) Um, They can be exercised. Some people may get the idea of, hey, why don't we just destroy the tree? Because if you damage the tree, you also damage the content um because also because typically they're only damageable by uh plus two weapons so they're quite nasty but should you decide to attack this tree there are consequences the person who destroys the tree gets an ancient curse dun 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 yes so just lots and lots of nasty with this creature. Because, one, you need hot plus two magical weapons to actually hurt it. Or if you decide to go after the tree, yeah, you're getting an ancient curse. Or you're probably possessed or insane. 
So a great creature to terrorize a village. Just put one on the outskirts and people know, don't go out at night. Otherwise, you come back babbling and drooling. If you actually come back, more likely they would just find you sitting somewhere. Because you do have an intelligence of two and are slightly smarter than like a gnat. (laughs) Awesome. So yes, it's just one of those creatures that the players won't expect. And it really fits in that whole like ring uh, variety of movie or Ringu. Yes. The little cat boy. Instead, instead, this is a pretty uh, little girl. So, yeah. Great monster here. Just to torment your party. And it's actually rather the nasty effects you can get by if you just know what to do. Yeah, but the heal spell, that's not just like... That's that's a high level cleric spell heal, <laughs> right? Yeah, you got to get some work, much like the exorcism, to get rid of it. Right, right. <laughs> so at that point, that can become the an adventure in itself. You have this insane party member, and you must now hunt down this high level cleric on top of a mountain to get healed. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And also, you may happen to find some treasure stuff laying around from the previous people that went insane nearby, but they normally don't keep anything. But yeah, it's just something to stick in the woods and torment people with. Oh yeah, and they got 20% magic resistance. <laughs> just... good, way to, good way to screw up your players. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Or you could even just send, uh, have a... the players come across someone who's babbling and drooling on themselves that it's suffering from this insanity. And yeah. And you have to find some way to cure him because you have no clue what's, uh, you know, doing that affecting him. Right. Maybe all you'll find is like a letter say, that tells you where he's from or something. At that point you go and have to take this insane person back home. Maybe his name is Eddie and he's crazy. Yes. Crazy Eddie. And he has a, a nice mercantile shop. <laughs> and he's just completely insane. Yes. But yeah. Fun. Insane people always brighten up an adventure. Oh, absolutely. Especially if you can make half your party insane. Well, that's the real fun. Yes. Then at that point, you're almost playing Call of Cthulhu. Yay. <laughs> yes. And then Nick becomes happy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that makes Nick a happy bear. <laughs> I'm a happy bear. bear. All right, cool. So let's jump into another round of Dungeon Master Assistant by Ronald Korn. In this installment of the DM's Assistant, I thought we'd discuss creating NPCs on the fly. Inevitably, your PCs will approach and question someone in your adventure that you didn't plan on. It's only a matter of time before the party enters the local establishment, questions the innkeeper, the staff, and then several random patrons. So you may have expected and prepared for the innkeeper, but you really didn't have time to create an entire restaurant of patrons. Don't worry, the DM's assistant is here to show you some shortcuts to making sure you have ample NPCs for any challenge. The most difficult part of doing any NPC on the fly on stat blocks. Let me give you some tips. First of all, remember you never need to make stats for anyone who the PCs aren't going to fight so the local farmer doesn't really need stats. Okay, I know sometimes PCs will do silly things like fireball the farmer, but in that case you really don't need the stats to know that it will succeed, right? Two, 
Uh, for the NPCs you do need stats for, have a few stat blocks at the ready without names and just plug them in. You can either roll these up ahead of time or use pre-written source like the Rogue's Gallery, for example. In that case, you may need a fighter, you just grab a stat block that is higher in strength with con, and you just pull a pre-made fighter from the gallery. Lastly, as the DM, you don't need to roll at all, just assign the stats. Figure out what stats you need to know for your NPCs, such as strength, AC, hit points, and then just assign those stats, and this can be done on the fly. Alright, so what do you need to have at the ready? Let's start with names. You need to have several serious names at the ready, and believe me, for immersion purposes, you want to avoid naming everybody John Smith, Big John, or Tim the Enchanter. There are a couple sources you can use for this. You can use Gygax's Extraordinary Book of Names, or there's also a document put out by the Story Games Name Project. Both are good because they provide names separated into specific genres, regions, etc. So if your campaign tends to be Finnish flavored, you can find names which fit that genre. Or if you need a quick name for a pixie, you can find that as well. Now that you have your names, you need to have a few pieces of info at the ready. In Dragon number 184, there was a great article written by C.M. Klein called The Seven Sentence NPC. Klein suggests that you only need one sentence from the following categories to have a viable NPC. Those categories are occupation slash history, physical description, attributes slash skills, values slash motivation, interaction with others, useful knowledge, and distinguishing features. I'm going to make a few minor tweaks to the list. First, remember you only need the info that you must have to run the NPC question, not necessarily all seven. In other words, if your NPC is just going to be used to dispense information, then all you really need is his name, his physical description, values or motivations, and some important adventure connections. In other words, the info you need to dispense. It's probably a good idea to carry note cards for each NPC with the pertinent information on it so you don't forget, but that does take planning. However, I did find a resource which I believe could save you even more time. One of the best books written for DMs ever is a book called Masks, 1,000 Memorable NPCs. It's by the very prolific writers of GnomeStew.com. The book contains charts or traits and personality characteristics that you can randomly select, but what makes this book an even more useful resource is that DMs can look up a trait in the index and you'll find pre-made NPCs who are based around those traits. So for example, let's say you need a power-hungry villain or maybe a charming dilettante. You can find a quick NPC at your fingertips that has those characteristics. The index also contains quick groups of NPCs, such as Priest as Acolytes or the City Watch. So you can look these up in the index and you have each member listed for you as well. As the title suggests, the book contains 1,000 NPCs for any DM to plug in. Easily enough, easily enough NPCs for your adventure, your campaign, heck, forever. Mask organizes the NPCs by genre, contains villains, allies, and neutrals for each. They also teach DMs how to skin any of the NPCs despite their specific genre listing, giving you a way to use all 1,000 NPCs. Each character in the book comes with the following information. Their name, a few word descriptor, appearance, a role-playing tip, their personality, their motivation, some background, and traits. The entries are short enough to read and scan in less than two minutes so you can easily flip to an NPC, scan it, and instantly have it quick and ready for the party. Let's look at an example. PCs decide to go to the local inn and talk to the local innkeeper, so let's grab one from the Book of Masks. So I did a quick search on my PDF for innkeeper, and the search came up with the following. Shala 
Perth Moore, Unscrupulous Innkeeper, Nessie Aglethorne, Chipper Innkeeper, Barley Trowbridge, Talkative Innkeeper, and Thaddeus Quickmire, an evil optimist who settles down as an innkeeper, and then all you need to do is really fill in the rest of the bar patrons, but they're all in the book. With a thousand at your fingertips, just spin the wheel and select another NPC. So remember, when you miss your role to detect the secret you know is there, you will always have the DM's assistant to peek behind the screen. Good night. Well, that was really cool. Thanks, uh, Ron. I hope you do some more. We have, I think we have one more installment left, and I know I spoke to him today. He was recording yet another one. Awesome. Outstanding. So you too, if you'd like to leave your own segments with us, just give us a holler on email or voicemail and let us know. We'll arrange with you to get your own segment up here as well. So I guess I'm going to say this was a really good show. So keep it original, keep it old school. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night, everyone. Good night. Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with d20radio.com. You can visit us at rfipodcast.com or contact us on our forums at osrgaming.org or even by calling us at 570-865-4210. This podcast is produced for entertainment purposes only. All other uses are prohibited. And remember, if your magic missile spell doesn't automatically hit, you're playing the wrong edition. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Roll for Initiative. 